0: Okay, I get to read this morning, so I'm excited about this. Usually I have Caleb in my lap, so I'm explaining it to him as I read this. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, therefore King Darius signed the document and an injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den, and no harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, i pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for uh, the moisture that we got over the past week. And I pray that you would um, just let peace and unity reign in this place and I pray that you would give uh, David the words to speak and you would empower him and that uh, the Holy Spirit would rest heavy on him. Father, I thank you that um, we get to meet and join in freedom in this country, and I pray for peace um, for the Ukrainians and for that wartime over there. I pray that you would um, just provide relief for them. Father, please help us to serve you with all that we are and to seek out you every day. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Can God deliver? Or can your God deliver you? That's the central question that stood out to me in this passage. It's, it's the question that Darius asks Daniel. And it's not just, can your God deliver you in this circumstance, but is your God able to deliver? That's the question that we find there, but it's also a question that is still repeated in our day today. As we've already mentioned several times, and I'm sure we've all watched the news about the Russian invasion in Ukraine and There may have been moments where you've wondered, or certainly the world has wondered, well, where is God? How could this happen? Or where are leaders, you know, how can this not be stopped? God, can can you still deliver today? I I read a a story of one Ukrainian soldier who said, you know, I believe in our defenders more than God. I'm I'm grateful for him defending his country, however, it shows that we Do we all have that temptation? It's much easier for us to believe that there are people or things or nations or leaders or institutions that can deliver us rather than just trusting in God. Because we can see things, but we can't always see God acting. And so our question is, can God deliver? The answer that we find in this passage is yes. Yes. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to see Daniel's example. We'll look at God's power, and finally, we'll see how this whole passage really points to Jesus. So, we're going to look at Daniel, God, and Jesus. So, our our first blank, if you're keeping notes, is that Daniel, in his example, Daniel trusts God in every area of his life. Daniel trusts God in every single area of his life. So, Daniel can affirmatively say, yes, my God has delivered me. But Daniel didn't just say it then when he was rescued from the lions. He said it in the beginning with how he lived every single day with every part of his life. And when our story begins on a high note. There's the new ruler, King Darius, after the other kings have come and gone. And Daniel's now placed in charge. And he's one you know, of these three officials or presidents or high people in the kingdom. He's one of the top dogs, if not the highest, other than the king. And in three, he became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was found on him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Because he was so faithful, because he was so obedient, and he trusted God with every area of his life, he was doing his best work even for these Babylonian or Medo-Persian kings now. And so he's put in charge, or the king's plotting to put him in charge of everything. And as you can imagine, if you're in charge of everything, there's plenty of people who wish that they could be you, and don't like that you're you, and want to get rid of you so that they can be you instead. And so for the high officials and satraps, they sought to find a ground of complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. So they want to get rid of him so they can take his job from him and hopefully have it for themselves. But there's a problem. They can find no ground for complaint or any fault because he's faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. This is part of why we see that Daniel trusts God with every area of his life. There's nothing in his life that he isn't trusting God with. There's nothing in his life that he's not being obedient in. He's being obedient not just in his private worship of God, not just in his obedience to the law, in his obedience to God. He's also trusting in God and being obedient in his public life, in his work, in his work for a foreign king in a foreign kingdom. He is doing it in a way that honors God. And they can't find a single complaint. They call all their spies... Right? They're political attack dogs. Let's do opposition research. Let's find what skeletons we can see in Daniel's closet. But they can't find anything. They can't find a single dollar he's embezzled. They can't find a bribe that he's taken. They can't find a place that he was using all his power and influence in a way that he shouldn't have been. He's been doing everything right. Everything. I'm sure we can imagine that wouldn't be true of these other high officials and sad traps and people around. I doubt we could say that's true just about any politician, especially not one that has that much power in any nation anywhere. And yet, this is true of Daniel. And so, this is their conclusion. You know, these men say, well, we can't find any ground of complaining against him unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What a statement this is about Daniel's faith that he is so righteous that he so trusts god with every fiber of his being in everything that he he does that the only way they can get rid of him is if they make godliness and righteousness illegal then they'll be able to get him and they know they'll be able to get him because he is following god's law to the best of his ability there's no place that he's not so this is what they do in 7 The high officials, the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, counselors, and the governors. There's a lot of people that are all coming against Daniel. Really, the world is against him, and still he's trusting in God. And they all agree that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, should be cast into a den of lions. Now, we know because we've been reading the verses before, this doesn't have anything to do with their religious life. Okay, they're not real big worshipers of Darius and think, you know, we, everyone needs to be praying to you, Darius. We shouldn't be praying to other gods. This isn't religiously motivated. This is political. It's a power move. And I think Darius realizes that as well. Okay, Maybe he's flattered by it, but I don't think he really believes that all of these high people that are always trying to get things from him or get him to do something are really just overcome with worship for him. They, they want something for it, and he's, he's kind of proud to go along with it. I don't think he really cares about people praying towards him, but they're pressuring him. So, okay, you guys all want this? Sure, I'll sign this 30-day injunction. Seems meaningless. Let's move on. But now for these 30 days, prayer to anyone other than Darius is illegal. So we wait to see, well, what's Daniel going to do now? He knows about it. It's not just because they would have told him, but he's high enough up in the government. He would have heard this is coming and happening. In verse 10, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he goes to his house where it had windows in his upper chamber, and they were open towards Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he'd done previously. Daniel does exactly what he's always done. He doesn't now open up his windows or pray in a way that he hadn't prayed before. He just goes about worshiping and honoring and trusting God as he has every day of his life that he's been here. But he does. He prays at this open window where everyone can see and everyone knows. And even the officials and these people know. Three times a day, Daniel goes and he prays at that window and he faces Jerusalem. And we know what God he's praying towards. Now, in the past, this practice has always kind of confused me. Like, why does Daniel do this? Why is he praying? Not just why does he pray anyway. We can get that. You know, he's, he's praying because that's what he's supposed to do. Why is he praying in an open window? That seems, you know, seems kind of show-offy. So it seemed like not what we're supposed to do. Didn't Jesus tell us, you know, don't pray in public. Go in a private room and pray where nobody can see you. You know, what, what is he doing? Is he just waiting for the cameras or for an audience? That doesn't, doesn't seem great. Couldn't he just shut his windows and pray and he's still being obedient? Well, you know, what is going on here? And if we look, what I found is that Daniel is actually praying at the window, not just in obedience to Scripture because we're supposed to pray to God, but his specific practice here is something God has commanded them to do, or it's an obedience to God. If, if you flip over to 1 Kings chapter 8, I'll, I'll read the important part to you, but this is um, for your knowledge later. You'll find why Daniel is praying here in this way. In this chapter, this is after Solomon has built the temple. So finally, they, they are building the temple, the, the center of God's worship where they're supposed to make their sacrifices to to point and so that their sins can be forgiven. And And in this chapter 8, as Solomon is giving his dedication. He prays over the temple and he's dedicating it because now they're making all these sacrifices and getting ready. It's their inaugural worship ceremony. And when this happens, in this prayer, five different times Solomon prays and mentions specific ways people should pray. And he said, five different times he says, people, when they pray towards this house, when they're out in the field and they realize a sin, they get on their knees and they face the temple and they pray and know that you will hear them because there's a sacrifice for their sins. And he goes on through all these ones and, and a specific one happens in, in eight forty six and 48. He mentions, now, hey, Lord, if there's someone who sins against you and you're angry with us and you give us over to the enemy, And we're carried away to captivity to a foreign land, which is what's happened to Daniel here. And we're away and far off. Yet, if they're in that place, in our hearts we we repent and they turn to the land. And they plead and acknowledge our sins and face the temple and pray. Then, Lord, would you hear that prayer? So Daniel is following Solomon's words here when he is by that open window. And that's why it says and it mentions that he is praying towards Jerusalem. It's not just giving you, you know, the geography so you know the direction he's praying. He is praying not just facing Jerusalem, but he is praying thinking of God in the temple and hoping that God hears his prayer and will let them go back to the land. Solomon told it, said, hey, when you're in the foreign land, pray and repent this way. Face Jerusalem, repent of your sins, and God will hear you, and maybe you will get to go back. And that's what Daniel does here. He's not doing this just so people can see. He's not doing this just to show off. It's not just because he likes the breeze. It's not just because he doesn't want to, you know, give in to this law. It's because he is doing this in obedience to Scripture. It is biblical. He is facing and praying and hoping that God will forgive his people. And he trusts that God will, and he will return and deliver them and save them and take them back to the promised land. So that's part of it. that. That's the, the answer, I think, for why Daniel prays this way and why he doesn't stop. He knowingly prays anyway. And I love he just, he prays the way that he always had. He doesn't alter his normal routine. He doesn't do something bigger and showier. He doesn't do anything less. He just continues to honor God as he has. Now, what would you do if you were in Daniel's shoes, right? I think if this was any of us, or if we're honest, right, we would probably not respond how Daniel does. We would begin maybe probably immediately by getting angry, by shouting, by by calling our friends, can you believe this law that's been passed? This is so wrong and unjust. Why am I being targeted this way? Why are followers of God being targeted this way? You know, we've got to post all over Facebook and do some memes and stage protests. Or, or even our prayers would be one of begging God to see this injustice. God, punish the enemies. Punish those people who would do this. Would you change this? Would you make, would you make things right? But we look at how Daniel prays. He just prays and he gave thanks before his God. For his three times a day, when he gets down on his knees and he prays, knowing that what, he's do, what he is doing will lead him to a den of lions, he gives thanks. He doesn't pray for deliverance. He doesn't pray for a law to change. He doesn't pray for safety. He just thanks God. That's how Christians are commanded to respond to persecution, right? men In the Sermon on the Mount, we read, Re- rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Christians, followers of God, when we are persecuted, when things like this happen, our response is supposed to be one of thanksgiving, not one of grumbling and complaining. This is why you see the apostles, after they're beaten and shipped out and thrown out of prison, they leave rejoicing and celebrating and say, God, thank you. Thank you that you deliver us. Wow, thank you that we get to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yet how often do we not respond like Daniel does? But that's what he does. He gives thanks and even more than that, often we can crack under pressure. We can give in to evil because everyone else is doing it, so why not me too? Or when our righteousness becomes unfashionable, we try to hide it. Or we try to soften the edges. Or when there are parts of God's word that are unpopular, we skip over it and ignore it and maybe not try to talk about it as much. But we definitely don't respond always like Daniel, and yet Daniel does. He trusts God with every area of his life, and he responds with righteousness, following God as he's always done, and with thanks and gratitude to God. Because really, I don't think anything reveals trust in God like gratitude and thanks does, especially in the midst of opposition and in the midst of suffering. But that's what Daniel does. So Daniel is our example. Our second point, we see God's power, and we see that God delivers the faithful and he punishes the wicked. God delivers the faithful and punishes the wicked. So these officials, they they run to the king because they've caught Daniel in their trap because they knew they would. They knew the righteous man that he was. Verse 11, these men came by agreement. They found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And they came nearer and said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, didn't you sign an injunction? Anyone who makes a petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, cast into a den of lions. So what they do here is smart. They're trying to trap the king. They're double-checking. They're double-checking to make sure this law is, in fact, in effect. That he's not changing his mind. He's not going back. He's not getting rid of it. That no exception can be made for Daniel. And the king responds and answered and said, Well, yeah, the thing stands according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Can't be revoked. says, Yep, sounds right. It's good. And only then do they reveal, Well, Daniel is the one who has done this. They say, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, which shows how highly they think of these Israelites, which is low, pays no attention to you, and he's making this petition three times a day. And now the king kind of realizes in verse 14, when he heard these words, he was much distressed. He realizes he's been outmaneuvered and now realizes what this whole thing has really been about. It's all been about Daniel, not anything else. And he's late, much distressed. He sets his mind to deliver Daniel and he labors till the sun went down to rescue him. Do you catch that? It's not only that King Darius is upset about it. He's not just mad that he's been outmaneuvered politically by these guys. He's also upset because he seems to care about Daniel. He wants to rescue him. This is one of the only kings who seems to really pay attention to Daniel and treat Daniel the way he should be. And now when there's some trouble, he's not, it's not the king trying to throw him into a fiery pit. It's this king's trying to get him out of it. He wants to rescue them and save them. It's a picture of a man who does care, but the officials, they don't give up and aren't deterred. And they say, king, you know it's the law of the Persians. No injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. They remind him of it. Now, presumably, we don't know this, right? But he is a king. could probably change his mind if he wanted could probably go against their laws and violate and say, you know what, I don't really care about that law. Since I see what you're doing, I'm going to do what I want anyway. Daniel's not going into that pit. But that's a political problem he has. Is he willing to pay the price to to go against all of these, these people, presumably, that could get rid of him or overthrow him? Maybe is he willing to violate the law in order to save Daniel, which is why he is so distressed about it. That's so why he can't figure it out and he labors till the sun goes down. He spends the whole day working, racking his brain, trying to think, man, how can I save him? How can I deliver Daniel? But in the end, he's not able to save, whether from his lack of ability or his lack of moral fiber. And the king commands and Daniel's brought and he's cast into the den of lions. He's tried his best. I mean, we have to give him credit and be grateful for him he, he didn't just go along with it he, he tried but he couldn't save Daniel and the king declares to Daniel may your God whom you continually serve delivered you it almost seems like a prayer but I hope your God can deliver you when I couldn't you've been so faithful and so righteous I hope your God is listening and he's going to take care of you because I can't do anything for you anymore And a stone is brought and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lord's, that nothing could be changed concerning Daniel. A stone being rolled over should sound familiar, shouldn't it? And this king, he seals the stone. It seems like he, he, it's not just the stone is there so that Daniel can't get out, also so that no one can get in, and I think this signet is put on it, so that no one can go in there and try and kill Daniel just in case he does survive these lions, just in case God does do this, he doesn't want an assassin to finish the job and get rid of him. And then the king goes, he goes to his palace and he spends the night fasting. And no diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. You probably had a night where sleep fled from you. You stayed up all night in, in prayer and worry and anxiousness. This is what Darius does. He doesn't sleep for a single second. All that power, all that might... All those armies at his control, all those kingdoms and satraps and officials. And yet this king of Babylon, the king of the Medes and the Persians, is powerless to save somebody that he loves and cares for. He can't do anything about it. And then, 19, at the break of day, the king arose and he goes in haste to the den of the lions. He comes near to where the den where Daniel was and he cries out in a tone of anguish. You can feel this is the moment he's been waiting for all night long been worried about it. And now, here's the moment of truth. Did God actually show up? Is Daniel dead or is he there? And in anguish, he cries out and says, Daniel is the servant of the living God. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Is it- Daniel, I couldn't save you, but could your God? All night long, I- I've tossed and turned and wondered and wished that I could have done something, but despite all of my might and power, I can't. But did your God was your God able to? And our kings today, right? We don't always have kings, presidents, and rulers, and supreme courts, and whatever else, people who have power. But ultimately, all their power and might has a limit. Though they might deceive themselves and think that it doesn't. We, we eventually, all of us as human beings, come to a realization that our power is finite, and Darius has found his. But against all odds, and miraculously, Daniel responds. Then Daniel says to the king, and Daniel is alive and cries out, Oh, my king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I've done no harm. Daniel seems to have slept much better than the king. He seems to have had, had a great night. A wonderful night under the circumstances. Yet the king in his palace with his big, beautiful bed, I'm assuming, and all the pillows and whatever it is that kings had back then, he couldn't sleep, but Daniel was just among lions and seems to have been fine with no harm at all. Why? Because our God is able to save. Our God does save. Daniel could have, you know, sang along with us, our God is mighty to save. Forever the author of salvation, he rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Our God is able to save people from lion's dens. Our God is able to deliver people from all danger, if he will. And you notice whom God saves and why in verse 23. tells us the king was exceedingly glad that Daniel had been taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel is saved because he trusted in God because of his faithfulness to him. His faith is what saved him. Because God saves those who put their faith in him even from death. And this is the message of the gospel, right? That our God delivers those who put their faith in Jesus. Those who trust in him above all else, who do not worship other gods, but who repent of their sins and believe that Jesus really is the only way to salvation, will be saved from death. Maybe not death in this life, but from eternal death and suffering. And we're saved not because of our blamelessness or our awesomeness, but because we trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that those who put their faith in Christ, who put their faith in the body and the blood of Jesus, will be saved. And we have nothing to fear. The world can mock and wonder, well, hey, can your God really save you from death? What good is it anyway? Why would you follow God? How can he deliver you? How can he help you? What difference could it possibly make in this life? Our answer is yes, our God does. Our God delivers the faithful. And he will rescue us even from death. Even as we go and head towards our grave, we have nothing to fear because we know what's on the other side. And what's on the other side is our God and resurrection life forever. Because our God delivers the faithful. He delivers those who trust in Him, but the reverse is also true as well. He delivers the faithful, but He punishes the wicked. This was part of our psalm we read this morning as well, that both of these are here. The wicked, the unfaithful, those who refuse to trust in God, they will not be saved. So salvation of God, it is not universal, no matter how much you might wish that it was. God does not save anyone against their will. Those who reject and who spit at God and who want nothing to do with him will get their wish in eternity and will get to spend eternity having nothing to do with God. And we see in 24, The king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Justice comes here as brutal and violent as it is the men who tried to destroy daniel face themselves the judgment that they invented the judgment they wanted others to go to they find themselves heading in, and they're not saved by the king and they're not saved by god because they have not trusted in him they have mocked him and they perish and they die and this is the fate of those who oppose god This is the fate of the wicked. It's the fate of those who don't believe in Jesus as their only Lord and Savior. But it didn't have to be this way. You notice too, I mean, this is the hard part of the hard truths of Scripture, the the parts that we contend to overlook, the parts that you don't hear as many, you know, preachers on television talk about because these verses aren't quite as popular as John 3.16. Even as this is a really well-known story, I'm sure many of our kids in the back they have grown up in church have probably heard this story many times or could even tell you about this story. But I don't know how much we tell this verse or these stories of, well, the men who tried to get Daniel, yeah, they went in the lion's den, and they and their families all got eaten. We, we like to skip over these judgment parts because they're hard. But the reality, again, it doesn't have to be this way. God does punish the wicked, but there is an escape for any who want it. This is all of humanity's fate if God doesn't deliver and rescue us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we don't have to be crushed. You repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, you won't find yourself going into the pit of eternal death. You will find yourself going to be with Jesus forever. It doesn't have to be this way, but you do have to embrace Jesus. Because Jesus is the only way to salvation. There is no other way to the Father except through Him. And the king, after this, Darius passes a decree, and it is a decree that praises God. For he is the living God. He's not one of the gods. He is the and the only living God. And he endures forever, and his kingdom shall never be destroyed. It's not just that God can deliver you from the kingdoms of this world today. His kingdom will never be defeated by anyone ever, no matter how many come and go. And his dominion shall be to the end. His might and his power will go until time is no more, and he delivers and he rescues his people. He works signs and wonders up in the heavens and down on earth. He doesn't leave us alone to fend for ourselves, that he shows up even here and now to deliver the faithful. He, this God who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Our God is not just a God of wrath, though he has wrath. He is also a God who delivers and rescues. But he only rescues and delivers those who want it, those who trust in him, and those who ask for it. Only those who believe will be saved. But the invitation is open to any who want it. And finally, what does this passage have to do with Jesus? Well, point number three in your bulletin is that Daniel in the lion's den foreshadows Christ in the tomb. Daniel on the lines Then it foreshadows Christ in the tomb. Really Daniel's entire experience here in this chapter, I think, not just when he goes down, but all of it um, is a foreshadowing of the story of Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. You may have sometimes, you can hear pastors use things, you know, like type or typology, and would know, say, you know, well, Daniel's like a type of Jesus to describe this kind of connection. I, I prefer just using the word foreshadowing because it helps me. It, it's a little clearer for me at least. Because foreshadowing, right, it's when you see the details of a story that you don't really understand at the time, but then later when the end comes, suddenly you look back and it makes sense. Right? It's like a, in a murder mystery. If you're watching it, the, the first time you go through it, you're trying to figure out, well, who is it? Which one do you need? Maybe you even make a list and trying to go through all your suspects. Well, that person seems really shady. Well, maybe it's that one. But when you know the twist... If you watch it the second time, then it's really obvious. You go, ah, how could I miss it? Well, look at that and this and that. And I didn't see it the first time, but it was foreshadowing. It was right in front of my face the whole time who the killer is. I can't believe I never figured it out. The Bible does something very similar with Jesus. Throughout the whole thing, from Genesis to Revelation, this whole book is about Jesus. And it's all laying the groundwork of who Jesus will be. But because it was foreshadowing, they didn't always get it. The Pharisees missed Jesus when he was right in front of them. They killed him thinking he was a false one, not realizing they were fulfilling it. Even Jesus' own disciples didn't understand what Jesus was doing. When Jesus would straight tell them, hey, I'm going to die, and in three days I'm coming back. They, I, Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know what you're talking about. So you're going to defeat the Romans or what? Because that's what you came for. Even his disciples missed it. So all of these things are here to point towards Jesus, right? The whole sacrificial system of killing goats and animals was to point towards the perfect sacrificial lamb of Christ on the cross. All of this is there. So Daniel's experience, it foreshadows this. So I'm going to walk through some of these. You might be skeptical at first. I'm going to as we well look at the details, I'm going to show you how I think this is intentional. Right in the beginning, right, like Daniel, Jesus is also opposed by the high religious officials, and leaders of his day. They don't like the influence and power that he has. They officially, especially hate that the crowds are following Jesus and not them, so they want to get rid of him. And so they seek, it says this multiple times in all the Gospels, they seek for a way to get rid of Jesus, for a way that they can kill him. They're trying to find, how can we do it? That's why they're always asking these questions, trying to trap him. Let's get him to blaspheme so that then we can kill him. And that's our out. And yet, Jesus, they can't find anything to complain about. And finally, when they get there, they have to have a kangaroo court with false witnesses and all sorts of other shenanigans just to get rid of him. But unlike Daniel, Jesus is actually sinless and blameless in every single way all the time. And like Daniel, Jesus is cast into a tomb instead of a den, but it is this big rock outcropping where he goes in. Where Daniel goes in alive, Jesus enters the tomb completely dead with no breath in his lungs and his heart is not beating any longer. He's not just pretending, and then he'll come back in a couple of days when he's healed up, he's gone. And they both go into this place as the night falls. It tells it, you know, Daniel, he, King Darius labored until the sun went down, and then once the sun is down, then they throw Daniel in. And just like Jesus, you know, the Pharisees, they make sure that he's dead, and he goes in the tomb before the sun goes down, because they've got the Sabbath to celebrate, and they don't want to do any work on the Sabbath. Heaven forbid, you know, their murder of an innocent man get in the way of their religious legalism. So they both go in as night descends, and they're both, both of these places are covered by what? A stone. They can keep anyone from interfering. Darius does it, I think, because he doesn't want not just Daniel to get out, but for no one else to get in. And the Pharisees do it and put soldiers all around it because they don't want anyone to come and take his body and pretend that he's resurrected. And the king even, he seals it with his own signet rings. And both of these stories, too, Daniel and Jesus, an angel appears. In Daniel's story, the angel appears and it closed the mouths of the lions so that they don't harm him or eat him or bite him. In the case of Christ, the angel comes and it rolls away the stone as Jesus walks out fully alive. In both these instances too, there's also early morning witnesses. At the break of day, the king arises and he goes in haste to the den of lions. As soon as possible, he goes hoping, wondering with even anguish in his voice, maybe Daniel is still alive. In the case of Jesus, we have not a king but women who go to see him early. In the Gospel of John, it says that Mary came while it was still dark. Dawn hadn't even yet completely filled the sky, but they came to see Jesus. And both the king and the women were witnesses to a miraculous deliverance from death. The king was amazed that Daniel had been saved from lions. The women were amazed that Jesus had been saved from death. And both of them, both Daniel and Jesus, also experienced peace in their presumed tombs. Daniel seems to have a pleasant night with no harm, even though all of these lions are around him in the dark. I don't know, even if an angel was there, if I would feel lots of peace. I would, because I'm cautious and nervous by nature. I would just keep wondering every couple minutes, well, is that their mouth still closed? Are they going to come? You know, what's going on here? But Jesus, too, despite being in the grave, despite being dead, he was unharmed. The Pharisees went away to celebrate their Sabbath thinking they won thinking that's the last we have to hear about that Jesus guy. Sure, people will forget about him. They believe the problem was solved because Jesus is in the place of the dead. He ain't coming back. But Jesus died as a victor. And those three nights he spent in the grave, they were spent in a victory celebration. Wasn't licking his wounds, wasn't wondering, wasn't getting the muscles to be able to come back. He descended into the grave, into the place of the dead, to gather those saints who had trusted in God. It's people who had longed and trusted that one day the Messiah would come and deliver them. Jesus spends that time going and getting them and then bending it in heaven, ascending with them. Those who longed for the Messiah saw it. The lions had no power over Daniel and death has no power after our God. And both Jesus and Daniel are saved because of their righteousness. Daniel confesses, you know, I was saved because I was found blameless, because I trusted in God. Because of his faith... God saved him, because he was a faithful follower of God, God vindicated him. Jesus was executed because he was the Messiah, because the gospel and the kingdom of God had offended the religious leaders of the day. They didn't like it. They wanted a different kind of God. But unlike Daniel, Jesus was actually blameless in every area of his life. He lived a perfect life from the moment he was born from the Virgin Mary. Until the second he died on the cross and even continues now as well. And because of his perfection, because he was the perfect spotless lamb with no blemish, death itself had no power over him. And when he came back, he came with the keys of heaven and hell. Now, both Daniel and Jesus, they're both raised up by kings. Daniel's raised up by the king, of ba- the king of Mede and Persia, and he prospers more. Jesus is raised up by the king of the cosmos and the heavens. And after his resurrection, Jesus ascends in front of the 500 plus, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Part of this whole story was not just how God can deliver Daniel from lions, but it's to, it's to prepare us for Jesus. Because this, this whole book, this whole story in God's Word is one that climaxes with the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. That because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we too can be rescued like Daniel. And whether he does or does not rescue us from the the horrors that we face today or may face tomorrow, we can know that he will rescue and he will deliver us from death. And we can know that resurrection and eternal life awaits for us. No matter what comes, we can trust that our God can deliver. We can say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, my God might not deliver me from what I'm facing today, but He can if He wants to. But I know what He can deliver me from. He has delivered me from sin, and He will deliver me from death when He returns. Every knee bows down, and all of the graves of the faithful will be opened, will be resurrected, and live with Christ forever. We can trust in God and we can know that death is not our end. Our God can deliver. This morning we've talked about the example of Daniel, that Daniel trusted in God with every area of his life. He didn't just trust God for the end of his story. He didn't just trust him when he went in with the lions. He trusted him in the way that he lived 24-7. We know that our God delivers the righteous, but he punishes the wicked. And we've seen this whole story foreshadows Christ in the tomb and his resurrection and his victory. So we need to remember, I think, is that our God can deliver us, beloved. We don't have to fear the den of lions. We don't have to be afraid of tomorrow or sickness. We don't even have to fear death itself because our God can, does, and will Deliver those who put their faith in Him. I'm going to close this in prayer, and we're going to transition to a time of communion. God, I I praise you and am thankful and grateful that you are a God who delivers. Because Lord, there is much in our lives that we look at and we need deliverance from. But we celebrate first and foremost, God. You didn't come to just deliver us from pain. You didn't just come to deliver us from suffering, to deliver us from tyrants or invasions or all of the horrors that we can see in this life. You came first and foremost to deliver us from sin. And you set us free and you saved us. And one day when you return again, you will deliver us from those other things. Lord, we are so grateful that you are a God who would do so. That you care about men and women made from dust like us that you came and you died for us. Lord, help us to trust in you like Daniel. Help us to trust in your deliverance. And would you come, and would you continue to deliver the faithful today? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. But here's our, our benediction from Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance up upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.